This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, who's our special guest today? Thanks, Sarge. Today, we're talking to Seamus Timms, who is a pilot at Jetstar. Seamus discovered his love of aviation at the ripe old age of 16 when he started flying through the St. Kevin's College Aviation Program, through which he attained his private pilot's license at the commencement of year 12. After graduating from high school, Seamus completed an aviation degree and was accepted into the Jetstar Cadet Pilot Program that was run through Swinburne University. The course was condensed into two years with the majority of time spent at Murrabin Airport where he obtained his three important things that we're going to actually try and understand what they are, but commercial pilot's license, frozen ATPL license and multiple engine command instrument rating. It was through this program that Seamus secured his current job at Jetstar. During his time at Jetstar, uh, Seamus has been known to to uh, grace the beaches of Bali in his time off, but has flown all around uh, Australia, New Zealand, Fiji, Singapore, and, and Bali on the Airbus A320 and A321. Seamus, welcome to the show, mate. Uh, thanks, Luke. Thanks, Sarge. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Um, mate, well, I think a good place to start um, and for, for everyone listening um, that doesn't actually know what a, what a pilot is and, or, or what they do, um, I'm just being silly. I think that's quite self-explanatory. But other than the obvious, um, can you step us through what a day-to-day or maybe a week-to-week of a commercial pilot working at, say, Jetstar or I assume um, another major airline is um, and particularly when they're relatively new to the industry? Yeah, sure. Well, it's funny being a pilot's probably on the the low list of what you actually do as as a pilot. It's almost like a, a secondary task. You're 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 a manager, a HR manager. Um, you're dealing with multiple different entities. You've got refuelers, you've got engineers, um, you've got cabin crew to deal with. Um, you're being a weather forecaster at the same time. Um, so it's just you're trying to manage multiple different um, parties. And um, all this different information that's coming at you, and then flying the planes almost like a secondary secondary part of the part of the role. But in terms of the actual sort of day to day of the job, it's it's so varied, which is probably what I love. What I love about it, most of us love about it. I've I've started work at four a.m. in the morning, been in the crew room at the office, and then I've started work at at midnight. So it's sort of any day, any time. Work Christmas Day, work New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, work your birthday. So. You can be at work whenever, um, but just the sort of the, like the, the nitty gritty of the job. You actually you get to the airport, you go to the office, and you um you download all your flight plans, and you you meet the um I'm a first officer, so basically I'm second in charge of the airplane with the um with the captain. So meet the captain there in the uh in the crew room, and um we'll we'll put essentially all the information together for the day. Um, and the day could be could be anything. We could be doing four sectors, so four flights in the day. We could fly from Melbourne to Sydney to Brisbane and then come back in the reverse. Uh, it could be off to Bali. could be across to New Zealand and back, or uh, maybe New Zealand one way to then start a trip of domestic flying over there. Um, we'll then often um, go and meet the uh, the cabin crew in the office, um, just introduce ourselves, um, have a bit of a bit of a laugh just to break the ice, which is 
pretty important because they're your sort of eyes and ears down the back of the airplane. So you don't want them to be a bit, um, there can be some of the new ones can be a bit almost sort of scared of you just because of your, the position you hold and you want them to be comfortable and just establish that sort of communication uh, with you in the cabin. And then you'll generally head out to the, uh, head out to the airplane, um, either being international or domestic. Um, and then you'll, you'll start the day from start the day from there. And, uh, Basically, yeah, the day could the day could involve anything. Could be just a short day, just up to to Sydney and come come back to Melbourne, which is where I'm where I'm based. Or yeah, it could be off to Bali, which is always nice. So just one sector, and then you get off the airplane, and yeah, you can go to the beach and have a bintang and do all that fun stuff, and then come back a day or two day or two later. Um, but yeah, the most yeah the most interesting part of the job is probably the the variability of it because you just never know what you're going to get on a particular day, and a day might look easy on paper. The night before but it can just turn into a complete shambles um with everything that's just out of your out of your control well, I can you're, imagine you're, that, yeah. you're really at the behest of the weather aren't you yeah that's a hundred yeah hundred percent so you've got you get your forecasts at the, the start of the day they're all provided through the uh bureau of met um and then they sort of give give an, an overview of a 24-hour period or a 36-hour period depending where you're where you're going um, and then that's how you decide how much fuel you fuel you're going to carry, and it'll just give you a probability of forecast, probability on the forecast of thunderstorms, fog. Um, but the hardest part is, is it is just a forecast. Um, so stuff that's not on there can often appear, like fog, for example, um, and then thunderstorms. So, and at the end of the day, you're trying to carry the least amount. On it. You're not trying to carry the least amount of fuel, but you're planned to have the least. Um, amount of fuel just to um, save weight on the plane and therefore save fuel. Um, and then it's sort of our job to work out how much is it in a practical sense do we need to carry um, to get the, get the job done in a, in a safe fashion. That way you're not too, too stressed up the front there, especially when you've, you've been holding for an hour to get to Sydney when there's thunderstorms and the airport's closed. Now you're looking at where else you can go and the thunderstorms also in Newcastle. So now you're looking at Canberra and then Canberra is busy. So it keeps it, back it does home, keep it interesting. In <laughs> yeah. You know, I just want to be back home. I just want to be at home in bed, but uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's good. Yeah. So hundred percent that's the weather is a major, major factor. And especially like you'll fly one of the flights I used to do a fair bit was um, from Auckland across to um, Rarotonga, the Cook Islands. Um, and that's a long way in an A320 because it's primarily a domestic aircraft, but you're flying. So a bit over four hours to, Rarotonga and it's it's in the middle of the Pacific and the next closest alternate airport you have out there is Tahiti, which is another hour's flying. So if there's bad weather in um, Rarotonga, you have to carry or you always have to carry um, Tahiti as your alternate. So there's another hour's worth of fuel to get there. So it's five hours. And if there's bad weather in Tahiti, you're looking at over six hours worth of fuel, which is a lot of weight. Um, and to carry that often, you'll have to um, make some changes and that's whether you offload passengers or bags to to get the, um, get the job done. So you'll, you'll sit there, but, and it does cost the airline a lot of money. If you start off floating passengers and bags and have to be really reallocated onto a different flight. So it sounds, it sounds like you, um, you've got a lot on your plate. You got to be good at geography. You've got to be good at maths. You've got to understand the weather. Uh, you've got to deal with all the people that are on the plane and, and deal with all the stakeholders before you get on the plane. Um, but yeah, you've, you've got a lot to deal with, mate. Like it's, it sounds like a pretty demanding and challenging job. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to. It's sort of the flying the planes, the um, the secondary secondary part of the job. That's because you become it becomes your bread and butter, and you don't you should you should get to a point where you don't even need to think about that. It's just your 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 basic skills. Then you're using the rest of your brain space to focus on 
focus on the other stuff. But it's actually funny that you bring up maths because everyone says at school, oh, maths is so important to be a pilot. And I did maths methods in year 12. But the maths you like you learn at school, you just don't don't use it at all. Like you, you do quadratic equations and all that sort of stuff in in maths methods, but I don't sit there in the plane doing quadratic equations. It's just <laughs> basic maths. Like you use your three times tables a lot. That's um when you calculate your descent profile. So you're trying to work out. So you're going through twenty thousand feet. You know, three times twenty is sixty. So you need sixty track miles to run, and you can work out if you're high or low on your descent profile and if the descent profile of the plane is giving you is sort of right or wrong and then you make allowances onto that or you're just quickly doing calculations like the plane might weigh 60 tonnes with all the passengers and cargo then you're carrying, I don't know, six and a half tonnes of fuel so it's 66.5 and you're just quickly just doing basic basic maths. So everyone says you need to be good at maths to be a pilot, which is not true. You just need to be good at simple maths. And if you could do simple maths, you're, you're fine. I think that's good news um, for anyone that did uh, math methods that wasn't really a fan at high school. I know the only time that I really see or use uh, quadratic equations is in my nightmares at the moment. So um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people can resonate with uh, resonate with that. Um, just kind of taking a, taking, um, your current role at Jetstar, uh, you know, we're talking in mid to late, um, 2020 at the moment, um, COVID's obviously a big thing in Australia. Um, looking forward in, in the airline industry, how is that going to impact, uh, you know, pilots and particularly people that are in aviation degrees or, or, and as we'll touch on that, like you were, um, studying, uh, aviation at say high school um yep. what, what are the prospects of of that moving forward and and what kind of recommendations would you be making to those students um interested in that well you're right covid has just tipped the industry on its on its head you can go well not in melbourne at the moment but you go to any other airport around australia and you see all the aircraft are parked up and at the moment i think we're at 15 or 20 percent of the normal pre-covid COVID schedule um, and obviously there's no international flying at the moment except for a couple of um Qatar and emirates flights that come in for doing repatriation and and that sort of thing. And there's been massive job losses. I know Air New Zealand, they lost 400 pilots. Um, Virgin have lost, oh, I think 600 pilots. Um, Emirates was 600. So it's huge, huge amounts of job losses. Um, but overall, I think the long-term, the long-term forecast is, is positive. Uh, I hope it's not going to be um affecting the industry to the same way it is now in three or four years time. So if I was just starting out an aviation degree, I wouldn't be so, so worried. It will slow down your career slightly at the moment, but if you look at three or four years time, 2024, 2025, it's well and truly forecast to be back at pre pre COVID levels, which is when there was a, a, a pilot shortage per se hmm. um, and airlines were, couldn't get enough pilots. Um, so yeah, if I was this finishing school at the start of a degree, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be so worried because everything's will go back to normal. It has to go back to normal. Um, uh, if it was at the end of the degree, it's going to be a lot harder. Um, trying to find, trying to find work. Um, particularly you'll ha- you'll have to go up to, um, Darwin or Broome or, uh, central Australia, um, anyway, to get your experience in light aircraft before you do mm. move into an airline. So there's still some, some flying there, some jobs, but, um, for the next three or four years, it will be harder to get into an airline, um, particularly cause you've got all these experienced pilots that are, uh, that are out of work. But in terms of a career, if you finish school, you look at a career of over 40 years. Um, and this is just a blip on the radar, and you look at what's happened in the last 30, 30 odd years, you had the 89 pilots dispute. You had um, September 11 in 2001. You had the GFC in 2008, and they all had huge hits in the aviation industry. 
um, and the ind- industry still prospered three mm. or four years later. So, um, yeah, as someone that was in a position that's that's looking um, to enter the industry, uh, I would be I'd still be very very positive about it. And if you do really want to do it, you will you will make it. I think that's great advice. And to that, we, as I said, we'll get into talking about the the high school experience and the university experience there as well. But I think you you touched on a, an important point that there's been you know, kind of thousands of, of pilots around Australia and probably you know in New Zealand similar markets being made redundant recently. Where can some of those people likely find employment between say now and, and when the industry does pick up again? And, and I suppose. Um, an underlying question is there, what are the, um, what are the skills that can be applied in other industries that you would learn become like whilst, whilst you're becoming a pilot, um, and vice versa. I mean, people want to maybe transfer in, into an aviation degree. What, what skills are really important in the industry or in the profession? Yeah, definitely. So I think a lot of, a lot of pilots now are looking at, um, or what we call secondary employment um, or something just as a stopgap to get them through the next, the next three or four years. Um, the skills we have, which are pretty crucial for our job is um, communication, decision-making, um, situational awareness. Um, so employers um, do, do like those, like those skills and they can be transferred to a whole number of whole number of different, uh, different industries. Um, I probably, if I was in that position where I was made redundant, I probably want to aim to do something that um, I'd be, I'd enjoy doing. I studied economics in year 12. So I probably want to do something in towards the finance, finance sort of sector. And it's actually been an interesting time for me because I'd never spent much time considering what am I going to do if the whole industry falls apart, like it has at the moment. And I'm lucky I've still got a job, Um, but I've probably will actually maybe study something once everything starts to go back to, back to normal just to try and future proof myself for when something like this will occur, when there'll be another downturn and you could potentially find yourself, find yourself out of work. So um, flying something that you really want to love um, and want to do. And if you're not doing that, you probably want to be doing your second best option or else you'll you probably <laughs> won't be in the best mental, mental space. So I'd look at doing something that you've, you've maybe considered before, before flying for, in my case, I was always interested in finance, studying economics at school and, um, a, a lot of my mates that are, that are not flying at the moment, they've been doing all sorts of things. Some have just been day trading cause that's what they find, find interesting. I find one, one of my mates has started doing, um, an aerospace engineering degree cause he's always been interested in engineering, mm-hmm. um, from that sort of, uh, from that sort of aspect. Um, I've got a mate of mine who's actually always been interested in building. So just, um, been doing a bit of, um, carpentry. So, um, just do something that you find that you've always found interesting because um, there won't be much work in the uh, available work at the moment in the industry for the next year, year or two for jobs, jobs yeah. coming back. But I think just do do something that's enjoyable and something that's maybe quite a bit different to, mm. no, to, that, to that flying. Makes, but yeah, the, skills that, are, the skills are very transferable. No, that, that makes total sense. And I think that that is something that would resonate against uh, around any industry, right? Where it's, it's like if you, if you end up in a position where, that industry is going through a slow period and you're struggling to get in, then really do an analysis of, right. Well, I, I am learning skills in, in this university degree or in my job that can be applied elsewhere. So do an analysis of that. Um, and mate, mm. I think, I think that flows nicely into say understanding what you did at university and maybe also how you got into the university degree. Um, bit of context. We went to school together. 
uh, at St. Kevin's um, and they've got a really big uh, established aviation program. So why don't we start there and you can, you can tell us that journey and take us on that with you. Yeah. So I actually, I sort of wanted to become a pilot when I was um, six years old. It's the first time I can remember being on an airplane and I was just going away on a family holiday, just going up to, um, going to the Gold Coast actually. So flew out of Melbourne to, to Brisbane I remember as soon as the plane took off, just heard all the noise and the rumble and it lifted off. I was like, yep, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, so it's sort of from yeah, six, seven years old um, is when I, yeah, when I decided. And then, um, yeah, went to St. Kevin's um, with Sergeant Luke and um, they had the aviation program there, which is awesome. So it actually started in year 10, uh, which was just um, a semester of uh, aviation theory. Uh, which is industry, which is quite interesting. Um, got to do lots of excursions to um, cool places. Went to the Qantas engineering base at Melbourne airport, went to um, the air traffic control center or air services Australia at Melbourne airport as well. Um, got to go to the Avalon air show. So it gave you quite a good broad overview. And then you applied to um, do the flying part of the program in the year 11 and 12. So yeah, did an interview and they go through your school grades and decide whether you're, you're suitable or actually have the passion to passion to do it. So uh, year 11 was um, when I did what's now called a restricted pilot's license. So when I did it, it was called a GFPT. So, um, and there was lots of fun. It was on a Wednesday afternoon, got to leave, leave school lunchtime. We'd go to Moorabbin Airport and um, yeah, you do a flying lesson every every Wednesday afternoon. Um, so year 11, I flew solo in June of year 11. So I was yeah, 16 years old, which is um, looking back on it now is is uh, pretty crazy. Oh, it's, a big, the- it's a big thing, mate. Yeah, it's huge. And you don't really think about it at the time because when you're 16 and you guys know it as well, you, you think you're indestructible. And um, But like I'm on the train now and I see 16-year-old school kids. I'm like, why would, I would never give them an aeroplane. But uh, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't have given myself an aeroplane when I was 16, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, but you just you just have this sort of belief in yourself and that you you really want to do it. And obviously other people do it as well. And the, the standard of training is so high and you, you do live up to that level of responsibility that you and have at, to have. At, age, at the age of 16, what types of plane are you flying? Yeah. So it's um, the one I flew was a, it's called a Cessna 172. So it's a four seat um, training aircraft with a single engine uh, propeller driven at the front weighs about one, around a one ton, bit over one ton. Um, so it's your common trainer around the world. It's what most, most flying schools, flying schools use. It's a very forgivable aircraft, um, easy flying characteristics. Uh, and the ones I flew were pretty new. They had these, what we call Garmin G1000 avionics. It's a full glass cockpit with, um, sort of your LCD screens compared to the, uh, the previous style aircraft, which would, uh, have, um, what you call steam driven or, um, the old, old style gauges. Um, so they were quite, yeah, they're quite nice, nice aircraft to, um, to learn to fly in. Um, but yeah, that's what I started out in when I was, uh, 16 and that's what I did the, um, the restricted pilot's license. And then in year 12 did the, the private, the private pilot's license, private pilot's license in. And what, what's the difference between a restricted pilot's license and a private pilot's license? Basically the restricted is a stepping stone to the private license and the restricted license gives you the privileges. If you can fly from your, your local airport and then fly into the training area, uh, you can take passengers with you in the training area and then, and then fly back. So um, most people will then convert it into a private license, which then gives you the privileges to fly all around Australia um, in aircraft, the way up to 5.7 tons, um, take passengers with you. Um, and then if you want, you could also use it to fly, fly overseas as well. But 
um, that's a whole different different kettle of fish, particularly being in Australia where we're so isolated. If you're going to fly mm. overseas, it's uh, it's a pretty big pretty big job if you're in a in a light aircraft. Do you need your your L's and your P plates on the on the back window? <laughs> it's probably not. It's probably not a bad idea, really. But um, yeah, it's funny because once you're in the air, no one knows. Essentially, no one knows who you are. Everyone's flying to a similar standard, or there's a, a standard set by the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. So mm. whether you're 16 or 75, everyone's treated to the same the same level. It's just on the based on the license you have and the the expectation that's that comes with that. Mate, I want to ask you about um, going down the track of how passionate you are about the profession. Um, it, it's quite rare that someone has an experience like you described when you're six or seven and you were on a plane and you say, this is what I want to do when I grow up. And that actually eventuates. Um, what did it, can you describe that feeling before we get into the, um, the cadet program and, and whatnot um, next, but can you just describe that feeling when you were in a plane by yourself for the first time, roughly 10 years after you remember sitting on a plane for the first time saying, I'm going to do this. What, what did that feel like? It's funny. It was, um, it was actually, it was so exciting. So um, I was actually lucky. So um, mum came down to the airport that day. So the flying instructor I had um, Phil um, gave her a call and said, I think Seamus is going to fly solo today. I'll send him up solo. So he should probably come down to the airport and airport and watch. So mum came down with the video camera, which was pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, she was standing there at the windsock and I went up with Phil, did three circuits and he says, yep, you're ready to go solo now. So landed and then um, taxied back in and uh, dropped Phil off. And then I was taxing back out to the uh, the runway again. I just remember I was just so, so excited. Um, and there's a bit of nerves there as well because it's, you don't have someone sitting there next to you, can't ask them a question. It's all, it's all on you now. And you, you line up on the runway and I've got going and the aircraft takes off. And that's what sort of dawns on you. It's like, I need to get this thing back on the ground safely again. So that's when it really so it goes from excitement to like, I need to get this job done. Mm. Um, so you do what's called a circuit or it's essentially a, a lap um, in a racetrack pattern from um, around the airport to then land back on the, uh, the runway you were, you took off from. So then you just, it just, the blinkers come on and it just, you concentrate on the job that's at the job that's at hand um, I was also, there's also some nerves because I had some schoolmates also there who were standing by the windsock watching as well. And I was the first one to fly solo. So I was like, I can't stuff this up in front of them because I will never hear the end of it at school. So it was just the pressure. So I just, um, yeah, just focus. And it was interesting because the plane flies, cause it's only a small plane weighs a ton. And then, um, it's just you by yourself. So there's what 80 or 90 kilos has just got out of it. So the plane flies differently as well. It's got a lot more performance, mm. climbs a lot faster, flies a little bit faster. Um, so you're just trying to get yourself used to that as well. And, um, yeah, came back and landed it. It was yeah, not, not too bad of a landing. It wasn't bad. It wasn't good. And it was just a, just a relief and, uh, almost an elation as well at the same time. It's like, oh, I've done this. And that's when I sort of knew that I could make this as a, as a career. Cause that's the biggest, biggest milestone. And you speak to any pilot now and it's the one, it's the one thing they always talk about is the first time they, they flew solo and, um, how it sort of set them up for, for the rest of their, the rest of their lives. And it's quite interesting. There's a captain I fly with it, with a Jetstar and, um, it's come full circle. So I fly with, um, with David and he actually taught, uh, Phil's mum. Phil was my fly instructor. So he taught Phil's mum how to fly and then sent her solo. And then Phil's mum taught him how to fly and then sent him solo. And then Phil taught me how to fly and sent me solo. And then I'm a Jetstar and then I fly with Dave. So it's yeah, right. four generations and it just comes, comes full circle. So I thought that okay. was, that was pretty cool. That's pretty cool. 
Um, fast forwarding a little bit, you finished school and then you started your aviation degree and managed to get into the Jetstar um, cadet pilot program. That's from our chat uh, before the show today. It sounds like a pretty um, intense thing to get into. Do you want yeah. to give our listeners a bit of a taste of the the types of things you had to do to get into that and how that all went? It is very intense because it's um, different to your normal aviation program where you finish the aviation program, then it's the onus is on you to then go out and then get a job and you'll be flying light aircraft or instructing and doing charter. Um, whereas with the Jetstar program, the intention is provided you meet all the requirements, um, you'll then be flying on a jet with, um, on an A320 with, with Jetstar. So there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that because you're not just a normal university student. You're there to um, complete the requirements and your employer is expecting a standard that comes comes with that. So the normal Swinburne degree goes for three years and this, the cadet pilot one goes for two. So there's, there's no holidays um, and there's not really a weekends either because you're just trying to um, make up time because being in Melbourne, the weather's not very good for nine months of the year. So you're always having flights, flights canceled. Um, and you're just trying to make up, make up time to make sure you meet your, meet your deadlines and your exams. Um, you're constantly studying. There's 15 different, um, CASA theoretical exams you need to need to pass. Uh, plus you've got your Swinburne requirements with their exams and their, their assignments they, they give you as well. So it's a very Shamus, intense. What, what, what was CASA that you just, um, mentioned? Yeah, so to give you a bit more background, CASA is the um, Civil Aviation Safety Authority. So they're the uh, the regulator um, for the industry, similar to how you have um, Vic Roads in uh, Victoria that regulate the roads and do all the driver's licenses and that sort of thing. CASA is the uh, the national regulator for for that. So um, they have these theoretical exams. So you go to, they have exam centres all over Australia and all the uh, exams are computer-based um, that's where you'll, you'll sit your exams. And, uh, once you've done met the theoretical requirements and you've got the experience, so you've done the flying lessons, you can then go and sit the actual practical flying tests in the aircraft with, um, examiners from the civil aviation safety authority. And, awesome. uh, they'll then say, uh, yay or nay, whether you're proficient or not, and then give you the, uh, give you the license. And so how many, how many hours did you have to do to secure that, um, or finish that program? Yeah, so there's 200. There's actually 200 flying flying hours, so 200 hours in in the aircraft um, that you need to complete. So from memory, is the private pilot's license you needed uh, 50, then commercial pilot's license was 150, and then plus you then do your uh, multi-engine command instrument rating, which lets you fly aircraft with more than one engine and uh, let it fly in cloud um, at night in limited limited visibility. So that's another sort of 50 hours. So it takes you up to takes you up to 200, um, which does take particularly the very start when you can only fly on essentially sunny days with light winds. It does make it pretty hard in Melbourne when the weather's not so, not so nice. But then as your experience increases and you start doing licenses of a higher level, uh, then you start to fly in weather that's uh, not as, uh, not as nice or not as calm. And running with that, Seamus, I know, I think this is probably bouncing forward a little bit, but um, going to your interview process to get into Jetstar and, and once you've got through the cadet ship program, I know that, uh, and you can probably speak to this, that the cadet ship program straight into Jetstar is one way of getting into a, a, a big, uh, a big airline and that there are other ways as well. But, um, in the, in the intro chat before, um, 
you you threw out a big number in terms of the number of hours that you're kind of expected before you're uh, even given the opportunity for an interview at, at a big airline. Um, I, I know certainly when someone said 200 hours in the air is a while, how many hours are you expected to uh, to have in the air before you get a foot, foot in the door at Jetstar? Well, Jetstar say they want a minimum of 1,500 hours, um, but the majority of pilots that get recruited from the direct entry scheme will have in the range of two and a half to 3,000 3, flying hours. So um, myself going through the cadet scheme, we probably only account for maybe 10 to 15% of pilot recruitment. The, um, the rest all come through the, the more traditional scheme of people have gone through either a university or just a flying school. Um, and potentially they've even come from the Air Force and they've got all their licenses through there. Um, and then they've gone and um, they've either instructed, um, taught people to fly to build up their hours. They might have gone to Darwin or Broome and done charter work uh, up there. And um, they'll then have gone to a, a regional airline like uh, Qantas Link or Regional Express um, to get the sort of first taste of airline flying and might have done 1,000 or 1,500 hours there um, before they've then gone on to an interview um, interview with with Jetstar, and it is quite interesting because you do fly with people of all different different backgrounds. Um, you fly with people who've been in the Air Force and they've flown um, fighter jets. Um, you fly with people who came from the same same um, cadet program scheme as myself. Um, you fly with people who've come through general aviation and the direct entry, uh, the direct entry scheme, which is probably the biggest biggest recruitment scheme. And they've they've flown in Darwin or they've been in Papua New Guinea or. Um, there's one pilot I fly with. He was uh, he was in Africa for a while and um, flew Hercules for the uh, United Nations. So you get all you get all different sort of backgrounds, which is good because it brings a whole range of different different experiences to that. And um, probably just jumping back to what we spoke about before in terms of the recruitment for the cadet program, it is a lot more um, full on than your normal pilot recruitment, um, basically because you're not a known quantity. If you've been flying and done two and a half, 3,000 hours, they know there's a certain standard you're going to be, whereas you're going through as a cadet, um, some people just have zero flying hours at all, so they need to know a bit more about you. So they'll put you through a range of um, uh, aptitude testing. So it's sort of maths, physics, situational awareness, communication, psychometric stuff. Um, then you'll do group interviews, um, which is interesting because um, because on my one, we had to, um, we had to build a bridge um, out of these. It's always like this Meccano set, um, mm. but there's all these different restrictions. So for the first five minutes, you couldn't talk. The next five minutes, you couldn't build anything. Um, and it was a total of half an hour. And then the bridge had to be able to support a glass of water um, which ours didn't fell off and spilt everywhere. So uh, who knows how it got into the cadet program, but uh, <laughs> a couple of us from the group interview managed to, to get through. And then we had a, had an individual interview um, and then finished up with a panel interview at the very end of that. So the whole process was spread over um, was three days worth of sort of interviews and um, testing that were over a two month, two month period. Um, hey, on those, on those group interviews. And, and I, I think anyone that's working in any professional services or, or big corporate has probably been through, through some of them. And the big part that they're testing is, is other soft skills, um, things like teamwork and, and communication. And a lot of those things that you spoke about at, at the very start of our chat today um, that are part of a, a pilot's job um, that not everyone might, you know, think of immediately. Um, if you're not going into a cadetship program, you know, during university, but you still want to become a pilot, what are some part-time jobs or some experiences that 
people could be looking to pick up that they can help develop those soft skills that are really important um, for a pilot once once you do land a job. It's actually that's actually a very interesting point you bring up because industry has changed over the last fifty years, um, where the soft skills have become very important. And what we call in the industry is um, crew resource management. So you look back at the 1950s and you'd have a captain who was ex-World War II and it's uh, my way or the highway, Sonny, and I'm not going to listen to you because you've got no idea. Um, so it was a very, what we'd call a very high cockpit gradient. So the, the level of authority in one seat was much higher than the level of authority in the other. Um, and you can, there's countless accidents which have just been attributed to the lack of um, soft skills or crew resource management because one of the parts or the, the first officer might have brought up or the second officer's brought up some information that's been ignored by the, uh, by the captain. So um, even just basic jobs like out of school, even working in a supermarket behind a checkout where you're just having face-to-face interactions with people. Um, and I'm going to sound like a bit of a nerd here as well, but I did debating at school. So that's interesting. So you learn how to learn some yeah, different communication skills. Mate, that, that's um, one thing that my mum told me to do every single week when I came home after school. She said, have you joined the debating team yet? And I'd say, why would I do that? And now every day nearly I regret not doing that. So I don't think that's nerdy at all. I think it's a very yeah. smart recommendation. Well, it's good because it makes you, you learn to think on your feet and um, come up with some quick responses um, and yeah, it teaches you how to, uh, come up with uh, a point of view and then how to express that in a very succinct and logical way um, and then also and also how to say it in a, in a nice way. But any sort of customer-facing job is probably good for, for teaching those sort of interpersonal skills. So it doesn't have to be something exciting. It can just be as simple as working in a supermarket probably helps helps teach that as well. And just be empathetic to people. Just put yourself in their shoes. How would you like to receive that information? Because you are going to have to be telling someone that they're not doing something well. Um, and there's very different ways you can tell someone. You can say, hey, buddy, you're an idiot. This is how it should be done. Or you say, oh, actually, I think, and you then produce it in a different different manner that um, that's a, in a more nice or pleasing pleasing way. But it's also succinct because you do need to get to the point because you are sitting up the front of front of an airplane. So mm. um, it needs to be yeah, straight to straight to the point. And when, when you're sitting up the front of that airplane, you're the second officer and you sit with a captain. Um, what, what makes a captain? Yeah. So basically, so my exact um, sort of job titles, I'm, I'm a first officer. Um, so there's three sort of roles. So you've got a captain, a first officer, and then if it's a long haul international flight, you'll also have a, a second officer, a second officer as well. Um, and aviation, particularly in Australia is quite backwards because they don't promote necessarily based on, on merit per se, uh, it's all done on your time of tenure. So when you join an airline, your name gets put on a what they call a seniority list and your name's put right on the bottom. And uh, as people retire, they move on, your name slowly moves up the list. And then the airline will then advertise for promotions to then become a first officer if you're a second officer or a first officer to a captain. Um, and then you can apply for that. And essentially whoever's got the highest level of seniority will get that, will get that position. Um, so provided you meet all the, the standards and requirements, you're going to be given their promotion. So it's not like a, in other fields where it's promotions are based on how well you're doing just purely on merit and, um, the time of tenure isn't as important aviation. It all comes down to time of tenure, which does make transitioning between airlines very difficult. Um, so if you lost your, your job at Emirates and you then wanted to come to Jetstar and you're a captain at Emirates, you're not going to be a captain at Jetstar. You have to start at the bottom of the list as a first officer or even a second officer and uh, yeah, wait for the, uh, for your name to, to move up the, move up the list. 
So on, on that note, is loyalty in the industry a massive thing? Yeah, you call it loyalty. Yeah, loyalty is probably the easiest way to explain it. But um, loyalty yeah, or blackmail. Blackmail, yeah, because <laughs> it forces you. It forces you to stick around. You can't just go and jump between jobs, particularly if conditions are better somewhere else. It's like, well, I could go there, but I'm going to have to then take a take a demotion to go there. So I'm not going to be paid as much anyway until I then uh, move my get a promotion to a captain or a first officer. So it is a bit is a bit backwards in that in that respect. But then on the flip side. And then if you're at a particular airline, it stops someone more experienced than what jumping ahead of you for promotion as well. So it's, it's a real double-edged sword in that, in that respect. Well, on, on that, Chambers, and before we um, kind of ask some more, uh, I guess, uh, softer questions in terms of advice and, and things like that for current students, um, you've been a first officer now with Jetstar for, for how long? Uh, so I've been with Jetstar since February 2014. So that's yeah, right. what, six and a half years. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, so six years there effectively with a, a pseudo university degree under on, on your belt now as well. What's your trajectory like in terms of how far off are you realistically before becoming a, a captain? Um, and, and, and what does that look like for the next decade for you and, and someone else that, you know, is on your kind of um, par on that ladder that you described? Yeah, well, pre-COVID, it was probably uh, six to 12 months away from becoming a captain. Um, so each airline has different timeframes. So Jets have been quite a young airline that's growing. Um, time to become a captain is probably seven, eight years, uh, whereas you've got an airline that's more established like uh, Qantas, for example, where you'd be looking at 18, 19 years to to become a captain. So, uh, But COVID sort of hit that all on the head now. Um, so I was probably looking at end of 2020 for doing my command upgrade, but um, who knows now that could be in three or four years time possibly, or it could be in two years time, just depending how quickly the, the whole industry industry recovers, recovers from that. Um, so yeah, it'll just be, yeah, it'll just be interesting to see how, how that's going to kind of change. But, um, yeah, there's lots of things you can probably do at the moment. Um, we're constantly going through training and assessment, um, in the simulator um, and then in the airplane as well to make sure you're always up to up to standards. So it's probably eight, eight days a year of a training and assessment. Um, and that's constantly being recorded in your file and they'll, they'll put comments and they'll, that'll be looked at as well when you'll be looking at uh, looking at getting a, getting a promotion and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, once again, yeah, it comes back to sort of how long you've, how long you've been there, but yeah, the COVID has made a, made a massive dent in a lot of people's, a lot of people's career progression as well. And when you're in the simulator, um, like, do you choose where you fly and like, how does, how does the simulator work? No. So essentially the simulator, it's, um, we, what we use is it's called a full flight simulator. So it's essentially a, a, a cockpit of the aircraft you fly. And then it's got uh, wraparound visuals where the windscreen is. Um, and it sits on these hydraulic jacks. So it's about two stories, two stories high. Um, and then you'll have the instructor station in, in the back. And the whole the whole simulator moves. So basically, when you're sitting there and it's simulating a takeoff, for example, it's rolling down the runway, and the graphics are incredible. It looks it does look almost almost real. And then the whole simulator tilts back, so you feel like you're being pushed back in your seat. Um, and then whenever you do a simulator assessment, there's basically a, a guide that gets put out from the training and checking department that says this is what we're going to cover cover this year in broad terms, but you don't know exactly what you're going to get. They'll be the first, each simulator session goes for about four hours. So the first two hours is sort of your canned exercises um, or you, we call them maneuver-based sequences. So um, you'll have engine failures after takeoff. Um, you could be doing instrument approaches, 
uh, visual approaches, single engine, both engines, um, and then there might be emergency emergency descents. And then the second two hours where you you just don't know what you're going to get, the instructor will decide which airport you'll take off from, which one you'll could land at, could be your choice, depending what sort of failure you have, but you're just not sure. Uh, basically, that's just to teach you those, um, or not teach, but uh, improve those decision-making skills and the way you analyze a problem. Um, and that's changed quite a lot the last two or three years. They call it um, evidence-based training now where they have an open-ended exercise, whereas previously you'd have a, a, a guide which would give you the rough idea of what's happening for the whole session, whereas now you just don't have that anymore. Um, and it is, and it does, it's, it does make a big difference in how, uh, it does improve your skill for those decision-making and, um, uh, sort of training exercises for when you actually are out flying the airplane, you do are presented with the same problems and you can transfer those, uh, those skills you have learnt, learnt in the simulator. And it is interesting. Oh, if, no, you're right. You, you keep going. I was going to say, it's interesting. So I did my Airbus um, A320 training. That was in London at um, Gatwick Airport. They've got a big simulator center there. Um, so I did all the training there. It was over, over two months. Um, and then I got my license to fly um, the A320. So the first time I actually flew it was um, with passengers on board out of Melbourne up to uh, up to Sydney. So, Don't tell them that. No, no. So it's quite, it's quite strange in that respect that the simulator scene is um, having such what they call high fidelity uh, that's so similar to the actual aircraft that they'll give you the license to fly without actually having flown flown the aircraft aircraft before. I think, I think that's a good principle. Um, and before I think Sarge probably has a couple of questions to wrap up, but I think that simulation uh, or jumping in a simulator for, for pilots is a really good um, principle that anyone can really adopt, right? Like if you're trying to get better at a particular skill or at a sport or, or anything um, to simulate the high pressure situation of flying a plane with passengers on it um, in circumstances where, you, you know, you're not getting the script and you have to make those decisions on the fly um, is really important. Um, and I think some very obvious examples that students can take from that is, you know, to, uh, to simulate exam conditions and you get told that all the time, but, you know, get, get a paper that you've literally never seen before and, and give yourself two hours to do that or simulate an interview, um, and get someone to really grill you with, with, um, questions that you don't know that are coming. Um, so I think that's a really, really cool, uh, real world experience that pilots do day to day in their role to get better at their role. Um, but students can certainly implement, implement that in, in any, uh, respect for sure. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. I, when I was doing the, um, the civil aviation safety authority exams is the, um, you do the ones for the, uh, what we spoke about earlier, the, um, ATPL license, which is the airline transport pilots license. So that sits above your commercial pilots license and you sit the, um, the seven exams for that. Um, and then once you've met the experience requirements, you then do the, do the test. But, um, there's a very difficult exam in there called, um, uh, ATPL flight planning and it goes for three hours and just gives you all these different scenarios based using a Boeing 727 and it's quite a difficult exam. So just studying for that, I just used to sit down and at the exam, at the exam center, they gave you the rubber and some pencils. So I went and bought the exact same rubber, the exact same pencils, the exact same type of paper you'd have, just get myself um, in that same um, mind space for what I was going to expect on the day and what, how much space I'd have to write down what I needed for doing all the calculations. And then it made it a lot more comfortable when I actually sat the exam because everything was familiar to me. I didn't have to say, Oh, I haven't seen this before. I haven't seen that. I just knew exactly how everything worked. Mm. Get yourself in that sort of, that sort of frame of mind. 
One last question before we wrap up. Um, what advice would you have for students who are considering um, getting into the aviation industry? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I'd probably just involve yourself with as much as you can at school um, because when you are just starting out, especially when you leave school, you don't have much on your CV really. So anything you can do that's extracurricular, so do debating, uh, I don't know, St. Vincent de Paul Society, do, do all the sports, um, make sure you study hard is probably the big one. Um, school results as well. Um, that's probably the main, the main thing is to try and make yourself as well-rounded as, as well-rounded as possible. Um, just so you can have some interesting things to put on your, on your CV for when you do, for when you do finish school. And it all does sort of play into those skills you will use later on, as we spoke about before with, um, debating playing sports good as well, because you have to have a medical every year. Um, as well so you can't be uh, too out of shape or else you won't get your medical and you won't be allowed to fly anymore so playing sports always good and you make good mates um, never never burn anyone as much as you might not like someone you just never know where you're going to see them again or where you're going to come across them again um, and particularly aviation it's such a small industry um, which then sort of leads into your leads into your networking so you just never know who might know who and then how that can be used to help you sort of improve your improve your career work experience is difficult in in the industry there's not much work experience around i was lucky i did it at um the Qantas simulator center but i only found out it's not published i only found out about that because uh someone we went to school with had a dad who worked for Qantas. so i found out about that from him so then i emailed Qantas and they said oh we normally don't take people whose parents don't work for Qantas, but on this case we'll make an exception and let you do the uh, let you do the work experience there. So, but if you just go to flying schools and drop your CV off and say, I'd just, just love to do a week in the office and um, get to see how everything works. And then you can put that on your CV as well. And then you can then use that as a, as possibly a connection for a job down the track. Um, so yeah, just try and engage yourself as much with the industry and it can be hard. Most of the places I want to drop the CV off at to get work experience said, no, it's just too, too difficult for us. But um, yeah, you never know your luck and you never know who you're going to come across again. So Network, don't ever burn anyone, work hard at school, just involve yourself um, and uh, make yourself as well-rounded as, as well-rounded as possible, which probably would apply to most other careers as, as you guys would know, you guys would know as well. I think it's all, all very good advice um, and something we can all certainly learn from. Um, and I think if we all reflect on our time, um, you know, at high school or uni, we, we can, we can definitely think of, uh, instances where we didn't apply those and, and we kind of wish we did. So um, definitely something people can take away. Thanks, Seamus. Yeah. Um, thanks, mate. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate the time. And hopefully there's some little nuggets in there that people can take away um, if they want to get into, into the industry. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Sarge. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.